Good afternoon, everybody, and welcome to Revelation Friday. Here we are in beginning the book of Revelation at the Preacher's Corner with me, Pastor Jay. And we're going to be digging into chapter number one. We already talked about it just a little bit. We edged the skirts of it back in, in, last Friday, but we're going to dive in to more detail uh, concerning the seven churches that, that John is directly writing to and how those churches relate to all of us today as concerning chapters two and three when we get there and the messages to those churches. So lots to get to, whole bunches of information. So stick with me and what a ride we're going to have. Rather we're here, rather we're there, or rather we get caught up in the air, we're going to roll with Revelation for the next that's 22 chapters, probably 40 weeks. No problem, right? <laughs> so hang out with me on Fridays. At uh, the study that we do live and in person is called The Reality of Revelation, and that is what we're talking about here. So good times, guys. Let's go to the Lord and ask His blessing. Father, we are thankful for the blessing of this time that we do have together. We pray that you will watch over us, that you will keep us, and that you will indeed cause your face to shine upon us as we receive of your word and the testimony of your, your promises here in Revelation so that our hearts are prepared for what is to come and that our mouths are prepared to share this message with all that we come into contact with, warning them of the wrath to come that they may flee to Christ. God bless it. We'll thank you for it in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. All right, guys, the very purpose behind this, this book, of the realities behind this book, is that very point. That we as children of God glean the understanding of what is coming to this world and the wrath that is about to be poured out upon it so that it generates such a fervency in our heart recognizing that the days are short and that the time of revelation is coming. It's marching full force towards us and that we would warn everybody that we come into contact with to flee from this wrath to come as the scripture says and and we wouldn't want anybody to have to face these moments. And and yet still we find that, that the world is, is relentlessly drifting in its own passion, its own desire, burning itself out on both ends with the wickedness of its of its days. And they need to be warned. They need to be told. Now, our our position, our purpose in this life is not to save them. For who are we? And how exactly could we save anyone? I mean, <clears throat> that's one of the places where people of the Catholic persuasion kind of get it wrong is that they assume that, that Mary has an ability to save them. Mary was, was right there alongside of all of the rest of us who were born in this earth with an earthly fathers that were all gripped under the corruption of sin. We can't save anybody. But one thing that Mary did do is that Mary told the servants at the wedding feast of Canaan, whatever he tells you to do, do it as he commands. Mary pointed people to Jesus, and that's exactly what we're called to do. She was just being obedient and faithful to what God had given her life a, a purpose to do, and that's point people to her son. And so we still are pointing people to her son today, and the book of Revelation is going to give us the tools to be able to make Make what is coming to pass real in the lives of, of the people of this earth 
very soon, I believe. Very soon. So we need to be about our Father's business. Now, a couple of caveats before we go too deep in the book of Revelation is number one. I'm not going to be talking about eschatological terms uh, such as uh, things like uh, rapture, let's say premillennial or, or mid or pre-tribulation rather, mid-tribulation or post-tribulation raptures. There, I mean, seminaries all over the the country are arguing over exactly when people get caught up instead of paying attention to what's important about the realities of the events that are going to be taking place. Uh, I have my own personal views, and oftentimes I will share my personal views and why they are my personal views, but I'm not going to be proposing one particular view here. If you're a mid-trib person and you know what I'm talking about, if you're that that belief, then, then you've got your own ideologies. And if you're a post-trib person, I don't know how you could be. I could grab a hold of a mid-trib, maybe. I mean, I could try and force a justification for it. But a post-trib? Oh, that's just the second coming. <laughs> There's There is no post-tribulation rapture. That's just the second coming in Revelation 19 where Jesus shows up on the scene from the clouds of the air and we're already coming back with him. The host of the army that's with him is the church and and it is going to be the occupation of Christ for the millennial reign. Now, some uh, another thing that's argued in biblical colleges is uh, premillennial, you know, uh, this this concept of amillennial, uh, meaning there is no thousand year reign, and and uh, all this crazy. Anyway, there, there's a lot of different eschatological arguments that are happening out there that that are just full of craziness. Just read the text, just connect the text, and that's another thing that's very important that we will strive to do. Uh, if time permits, with the book of Revelation, is that it's it's not a standalone book. The book of Revelation is a, a, an, a compilation of prophecies that have been given to us from Haggai, that have been given to us from Zechariah, from, from Micah, Malachi, uh, all through the minor prophets, even to Isaiah, Jeremiah, going to Samuel. I mean, all through the Old Testament, we find in the compilation of events that, that are promised to take place here, in the book of Revelation, it's not a standalone book. It requires the whole of the Old and New Testaments combined to be able to bring the essence to it. So this isn't something where we could just sit here and argue over positions, but that we would have to know and study the whole of the Bible to formulate our, our positions to, to apply to Revelation. And I aim to be able to do that if I am going to speak about the beliefs I have on a, on a say, a, a pre-tribulation based rapture that we go to those scriptures in the New Testament and and we look at some of the places of the Old Testament that give give promise to a pulling out before before destruction comes and then we we, we look at the millennial reign of Christ and of course we look back to the the Davidic covenant and the promises of of, of a Messiah that would come and that would rule and would reign. And, and then we, we come all the way up to the point where Jesus literally comes down in the clouds of the air riding that white horse and snatches up the Antichrist and the false prophet and casts them alive in the lake of hell or the, the, the lake of fire. 
And, and then we'll find that after a thousand years from Revelation chapter 20, beginning in verse number 1 and working our way down to verse number 11, which is, well, verse number 8, really, is one of my favorite places is because when Jesus, after Satan gets loosed out of the pit in Revelation chapter number 20, verses 1 and 2, when Satan gets loosed over in verse number 8 and he comes out of that pit and he amasses an army to come at Messiah, that, that he cast the, that old devil into the lake of fire alive where it says the beast and the false prophet are. Well, that's a nightmare of a scripture for folks that would be like, like Jehovah's Witnesses or Mormons or those who, who do not believe in a literal hell and do not believe in an in, in eternal punishment, but that would teach that that you are annihilated by the fire of God and that you are no more and it's all over when when you've got a thousand years of, of the Antichrist and the and the false prophet roasting in this lake of fire only to still be there after a thousand years when Satan gets tossed in. Understand that the wrath of God is eternal. It doesn't just dissolve you and you disappear and it's no longer there. No, as much as the love of God is eternal and that the children of God would rest in the love of God in his presence for forever and ever and ever fill in the blank, the wrath of God is equal and you do not escape it. You don't just vanish and dissipate and poof, you're gone. You, you will suffer that wrath for an eternity. And in fact, the scripture paints the picture of, of, of God creating a body that is capable of, of lasting forever in that lake of fire that you have to be fitted for destruction. It's like, it's like going into a bespoke tailor and, and having a suit crafted for you. And, and when you deal with, with, a gentlemanry and you're dealing with the, the clothing of a gentleman there there is the the suits that are manufactured that are hanging up in in a suit shop you walk in and you think wow that's a really nice suit i mean it looks great it's, it's hanging on the rack yeah that that's like the bottom tier <laughs> that's where i live guys because i don't make enough money <laughs> but for a hundred dollar suit, right? And that that's saving for a couple of weeks to get that thing. And and that's like bottom tier. And then then when you when you move to uh what you consider like Joseph A. Banks or or some of these finer we call them finer men's stores, right? Joseph A. Banks and Men's Warehouse and Suit City, uh, these different places where you, where you can have a suit made for you or made to wear well th this is a situation where it's a step up from the suit that's hanging on the rack that they're just going to tailor the cuffs a quarter of an inch and tailor the pants and that's all you get this is a suit that may even be a half canvas and i'll explain all of that later but it it, it may be fairly decent and it's going to run you about Six hundred to eight hundred dollars, possibly depending on what fabric you choose, maybe even up to two thousand dollars in this this made to wear uh, suit. But then you get to a bespoke tailor. Now a bespoke tailor is is going to literally let you choose a fabric, choose a print, choose the color. And, and they're going to measure every detail of you. They're going to measure your shoulders. They're going to measure your neck. They're going to measure your, your 
top back length uh, from shoulder to shoulder they're going to measure the length of your arm the, the the height of your armpit to the to the the, the trunk they're going to measure waist and chest in three different places they're going to they're going to measure everything because they're going to take this fabric and they're going to they're going to mold this thing to you literally your exact measurement so that when you put this thing on you think you're putting on another layer of skin i mean it's it's going to be you. And there's four four initial fittings. I mean, every time they put a piece together, they put an arm piece together. They need to slide it up on your arm to make sure that it's the right length. Or they put they put the back piece together. They put the chest piece together. You're gonna be you're gonna be in and out of that tailor's shop on appointment, get making sure that every little detail is just right. And then there's the fifth fitting where everything has been sewn together and everything is, is put together and, and just the minor adjustments that are being made. And then you finally pick it up and you're talking about somewhere between five and and some of these suits could be up to $200,000. You're, you're, you're looking at, at, at a suit that is designed just with you. That is what it means to be fitted. And that is exactly what God is going to do with a soul that, that is going to perish by being separated from God for an eternity in that lake of fire. He's literally going to design and fit this, this vessel that is made for that destruction so that it never gets devoured, so that it never gets destroyed. And you'll be wearing it for an eternity. You see, Revelation is a book where we are called as believers to understand it so that we can warn people of the wrath to come. When they come to us and they ask us questions about the hope that we have, that we share the love of God with them, and then then as they would mock us, we warn them. We warn them of what they're about to face if they do not hear what we have to say. But then we walk away because there's nothing left that we can do but pray for them. And so it's very important for us to understand the book. Now, uh, we talked about last Friday, we're dealing with verses 1 through 3, one really important point. We, we understood the very connection of the testimony of Jesus Christ, which was really thrilling. We grasped the hold of the, the concept that, that the revelation that we received in this book is something that God gave to Christ in order to give to John. And so... We know that ultimately God, our Father, is, is the one in charge and control of everything. Jesus knows everything that the Father knows, no question, because they are one. But there are some things that the Father knows that are above and beyond Jesus. They're above and beyond all mankind. There are some things that, that, that the Father knows that no one, not even His only begotten Son, nor the Holy Spirit that dwells within us are at liberty to be able to reveal to us because only the Father knows. One instance is the coming of the Son of God. Jesus said, no man knows the time of the coming, not even the Son knows when He's coming back. And so that's a pretty important point because somebody who would say, well, I'm not interested in that today, but maybe I'll look into it later. Maybe I'll look into it tomorrow. Is to be able to let them know that, man, you don't have tomorrow. You don't have another day. You, you've got this day. And if you pass this by, you're, you're done. 
because Jesus doesn't even know when his commission time is to come back, but Jesus knows that he's coming, and you better be ready now for his coming. But the last thing that we had covered last week is very important in verse number three is the blessing of, of receiving this word, the blessing of receiving this word, having it in our hearts. It says, blessed is the one who reads aloud the, the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear and who keep that which is written for the time is near. A very important call that, that we would understand. The time is near, and so it is necessary for us to read this book. Now, a lot of people do read the book. Don't, don't make the mistake and understand what I'm trying to say. A lot of people do read this book, but they... they that's what happens. They read it. They go, wow, this is way far off from what I could possibly understand. It's scary. It's a lot of other things. So they just read it and then, boop, they're out of it. But he say, blessed is he that reads this book and, and blessed are those that hear. And that's very important because that word hear is a word in Greek. It means to understand with the heart. And so uh, it, it's important not j just for us to read this book, but it's important for us to understand this book. Very important because it's the, it's the last warning before you fall off a cliff. It's pretty important. And he says, blessed are, the, are they that hear the words of, of this prophecy and, you know, hearing it is one thing. In other words, understanding what's being said with your heart, that's one thing and keeping those things which are written. Well, that's a whole nother matter, isn't it? Keeping those things is, is guarding, protecting those things in your heart. In other words, not, not going, hmm, that's interesting, and then walking away from it and forgetting what manner of, of words that you had received. It's kind of like the warning that we, re, that we get out of the book of James. Chapter number one, when you get into verse number 20 and you work down to 25, he says, Be a doer of the word, not a hearer only, deceiving your own selves. Uh, it's like a man beholding himself in a glass. He, he sees what manner of man he is when he turns around and walks away. He forgets what he saw. Well, that's the case here. As he says, blessed are those who hear. In other words, you understand the, the prophecy now. You, you, you get it. But you gotta guard it. You gotta protect it inside of you. You gotta you you gotta cherish it so that it's real to you, so that you grasp it. Because there are people who are going to need what you understand for them to be able to understand, so they can heed the warning and and they can turn to Christ. So not only do you you need to be able to hear it, as in understand these things with your heart by receiving them from the from the time we're talking right here but but you've got to be able to hold on to those things so you can give them out to other people you got to hold on to them you can't just willy-nilly say oh that was interesting get up uh, from from this friday and tomorrow morning wake up and just forget that anything was said forget that anything was was taught and just walk walk around blank and so many people do. You think about the multitude of messages that you would have heard on a Sunday, and when you got up on Monday, none of it really applied. None of it mattered. 
just drift away from it. It's like it. It's like the birds of the air came and plucked the seed right off the ground. It didn't even get a chance to get into your heart. But that Sunday, you were like, oh, man, that was a great message. Oh, pastor, that was so cool, man. Thanks. <laughs> so be warned that this is what uh, verse number three tells us that we need to do. Then we see the address of Revelation chapter number one, beginning in verse number four. He says, John to the seven churches which are in Asia, grace be unto you and peace from him which is and which was and which is to come and from the seven spirits which are before his throne and from Jesus Christ who is the faithful witness and from the first begotten of the dead and the prince of the kings of the earth unto him that loved us and washed us from our sins in his own blood. A very important point that Jesus made. Of course, I remember talking about this uh, from, from last week. And that, that is the very connection that, that we have the seven churches that we're going to be talking about. And you'll discover the nature of those seven churches over in Revelation chapter 2 and chapter 3. These seven churches, uh, such as Ephesus, such as Philadelphia, such as Sardis, uh, Laodicea, uh, Thyatira, Pergamum, uh, and, and, oh man, all of these different churches that, that would be in struggle uh, for their soul in some cases, but some of them doing okay. We understand that it is the seven churches that this was written to, but of course these seven churches in chapter 2 and chapter 3 are going to be recognized in, in their attitudes or in their presence before the Lord as maybe happening in our own church today, kind of like Ephesus where they had left their first love, or like Sardis in chapter 3 where they, they had... Um, seemed like they were alive to the world, but they were dead to Jesus. Maybe Laodicea happened to you, where you're neither hot nor cold, so you're getting spit out of Jesus' mouth. Or perhaps you're, you're Philadelphia, and you really are a loving place that truly does care about the ministry of Christ. Maybe you're Maybe you're a Pergamum where, where you're going through a, a very hard and suffering time and, and Jesus is just telling you to hold on tight to him because he's going to deliver you through it. Perhaps you're a Thyatira that has been, been uh, coerced off course of following Jesus by chasing after the doctrines of maybe the Nicolaitans or the doctrine of Balaam. There's so many different examples that, that that we have within our own churches today from Revelation chapter 2 and 3. So you definitely do not want to be missing uh, Revelation 2 or 3 as we do the teachings there. It's very important. But we find that the information of Jesus, kind of who he is, as it reveals in verse number 4, from him which is, which was, and which is to come, uh, very important there, the, the nature of the eternal Christ, the eternal Messiah. He, he is, for he is with us today. He was, for he was before day one in creation. But he is to come, for this is the whole warning of the book of Revelation to begin with. And the seven spirits we talked about as the complete spirit of God, the number seven in Hebrew representing that which is complete or that which is whole. It is uh, the, the number that does represent the nature of God in, in its completeness. And so we find that the seven spirits are indeed the testimonies 
each testimony that would be to the seven churches as the Holy Spirit would be leading in each church to bring forth the knowledge of what that church needs to change in order to to reconcile itself to his Savior, to his Christ. So it's very important that the seven spirits recognize the seven churches, recognize the seven messages that would be given to those churches, and it would be the, the whole message of Messiah to all his people. And so as it is recognized, the seven is complete in one. That's <laughs> so exciting, isn't it? And then we discovered in verse number five the, the nature of Jesus as well from Jesus Christ. Who is he? The faithful witness. Now, I remember last Friday we talked very briefly about this concept of the word witness as the word martyr. Uh, it, it is actually the word martus, which is the word in, in Greek. And, and it, simp it recognizes a person who has given their life in testimony. And so that is what we call the martyrs of those who had died for their faith in Messiah, that they were known as witnesses or martyrs. And so people say, well, I'm going to be a witness for Jesus Christ because I'm going to testify. But what they don't realize is that when they say they're going to be a witness, what they're, te what they're testifying to is the fact that they would be willing to die for Jesus. Now, when when uh, God comes to their hearts and tells them or calls them to become missionaries to, to the Republic of the Congo, or God comes to their heart and calls them to be missionaries to the border of South Korea or, or into Qatar, maybe I've been there so I can testify what it's like being there, uh, that, as, a, as a follower of Jesus, uh, otherwise in, in our United States we would call them so willy-nilly a Christian, they would find very quickly that they had other things to do. It would be kind of like a conversation with Moses where he said, oh, I can't go back there. <laughs> They're going to kill me if I go back there. Well, Lord, I, I, don't, I don't know how to talk very well. I've, I've got this stutter. I've got this other issue. I've got this problem. I can't, I can't, wait, 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 let me change that. I can't. I don't want to do what you want me to say or, or to do. And I don't want to say what you want me to say because it's going to get me killed. Well, a lot of people would end up in that and not truly be a faithful witness. Now, Jesus, nobody can argue the fact that Jesus was a faithful witness because if we think about the witness of Jesus, we have to understand that Jesus agreed with God, the Father, before time began that he would lay down his life for man. And it's the very purpose behind which Jesus was born onto this earth to begin with. And it was the very, nece the very necessity that he would die for us. And still he was willing to do so. Even though he lived among us for 33 years, he was still willing to do so. He gave his life a ransom for our sin. Indeed, he is the faithful witness. <clears throat> it says the first begotten of the dead. Now that's pretty exciting because for, what, 4,000 years before the birth of Christ, people were dying. Uh, this place called paradise, we see it in Luke chapter 16, where, where the, the rich man would be a, a burning in hell, but that Lazarus would be in Abraham's bosom. Jesus, as he was on the cross, would testify to the thief on his left side that this day you'll be with me in paradise. And so we understand the very nature of this place where Abraham's bosom is, where paradise is referred to. 
that <clears throat> that there were loads of souls. I mean, loads of souls that would be found in there. I mean, Adam is there, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, David, Solomon, all, all of these different, all of the minor prophets would be there, uh, save Elisha or Elijah, I should say. He got taken up in a chariot of fire, but. Uh, the, the, Isaiah, Jeremiah, all, all these different people, Josiah the king, uh, Jeconiah even, who would be in the lineage of, of Jesus. The, the, there's so many people. Hezekiah, even though he was a moron, <laughs> we'll just talk about that later. But all these people would be there. But Jesus is the first begotten from the dead. See, none of them could enter into heaven because the the blood of Jesus Christ. Look at what it says in this same verse. He's the first begotten of the dead. Why? Because he's the one that washed us from our sins in his own blood. You see, as being the Lamb of God, these fellows and ladies throughout the Old Testament, as they died, would not face the punishment of hell like the rich man did. But they could not enter the position of heaven like we do today because the Lamb of God had not been given for their sin to be to be removed, their penalty to be removed from them. So they still suffered the weight of the penalty of sin because the Lamb of God had not been given, but their suffering was minimal compared to that which was across the gulf in the torments of hell because they rejected God's gift. See, all these others had believed in God's promise, had received God's gift, and that's the difference at that time. But when Jesus came, he being the Lamb of God, is testified in John chapter number 1 and verse number 29, he being the Lamb of God in his suffering and in his death, and by his own blood, he covered the multitude that was there with him in those three days in that prison where they were waiting for him, and he delivered them all. Matthew chapter number 27, beginning verse number 50, you'll find that all these saints that were of old walking the streets of Jerusalem and the blessing of that first resurrection... And as Jesus testified to Martha in the conversation that was happening in John chapter number 11 between Jesus and Martha, he, it, all the way down to verse number 25 from, say, verse number 10, as Martha was accosting him while he was walking down the road and started in on him saying, if you'd have been here, my brother wouldn't have died. Jesus said, I am the resurrection and the life. It's very important to realize <clears throat> that Jesus indeed is the first begotten of the dead, for before him none could come back to life. But through him all came back to life. It's precious, man. And that is his title, the first begotten of the dead. Look at this, the prince of the kings of the earth. The prince, but isn't a prince beneath a king. So the prince would be the son of a king. But this particular prince is above or over the kings of the earth. So what does that say about the prince's father? If the prince be lord over all of the kings 
of the earth, and of course on the earth it would be assumed that the king would be the highest rank you could possibly get. So if this prince or son of a king would be over all the highest positions of the earth or of the kings of the earth, what does that say about this prince's father? Is that he's king of kings, that he's lord of lords, and that his authority has been bestowed upon his son so that he be the prince of all the kings of the earth. Now, why isn't why Jesus is known in Isaiah chapter number nine, right? Verse number seven is the Prince of Peace. There are several places in which case Jesus is known as being the Prince. Now, why isn't he recognized as King? Is because the the Prince will always be in the line as Prince until his father, the King, passes away. Once the father passes away, then the, the, the son, the heir apparent, rises to assume the throne of his father to become a king. Jesus has no aspiration of truly becoming that king because his father's never passing away. is the eternal God. He's king of kings for eternity. He is eternal. So Jesus, the eternal prince, is in service to his father, just like all the rest of us. Except that Jesus, the son, is the first begotten. He is over all the rest of us. And the judgment crown that Jesus wears is the crown of his father, which has been bestowed upon him Though he be called the prince, he carry the weight of the king of kings, which is written upon him as revealed in Revelation 19, king of kings and lord of lords. That's our Jesus. He's the first begotten of the dead, the prince of the kings of the earth, and he loves us. The warning of Revelation is given simply because of his love for us. And it comes down in verse number six. He's made, he, Jesus, has made us, his followers, kings and priests unto God and his Father. To him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. And amen. Praise God for that. Behold, he said, and this is a very important word, Behold, this word, it, it, it shouts to us. It, it, it is a word, it's a Greek word, it's called idu. Idu is how he would say this. And, and this, world, this word, it means to observe, to, to see or look upon. And, and often this word is used with exclamation. Uh, a person would be wanting to get the attention of a crowd so that they would be paying attention to an event that's taking place. They would go, behold! And, and everybody in the room would snap to and look at them and say, what in the world are you yelling about? This is the concept. Behold! What are we going to be observing? What are we supposed to see here as he calls us to behold? That Jesus, he comes with the clouds. So what what direction should we be in observance to? What, where are we supposed to be looking? Hey guys, you got to be looking up. And he says that he's coming with the clouds. And every eye shall see him, and they also which pierced him, and all the kindreds of the earth shall wail because of him. 
even so. Amen. Did you catch that? Even so. Shall wail because of him. Oh, man. You, you, you think about that word kapto. You think about the word wail here. It literally means to chop. <laughs> and that's kind of a scary idea. It, 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 its specifics is to beat the breast in grief. It's like that man that we talked about over the book of Luke that dropped down in the temple that was pleading with God. And it says he beat upon his breast and said, I'm not, I'm not even worthy to be in your house. Please forgive me, a sinner. Uh, unlike that Pharisee, it was like, I'm glad I'm not like that tax collector. Well, that is, they're wailing and understand that this is a position of grief because of the coming of Jesus is a coming that is of such authority and is of such power that, that the earth cannot bear the weight of it, nor can mankind stand the presence of it. And so we find that, that a, a great mourning, a great, a great wailing or beating upon the breast of this people that, that see him. And guys, think about this. The, the scripture says he, he's coming with the clouds. Now understand the very concept of the clouds at the first. Uh, a very important word, nephele, which, which is the word for clouds, nephele. And what we find in this word, it, it, it means that it's, it's cloudiness. It means that it's, it's, it's obscure. It's, it's cloudy. And so he's, he comes... He comes with an obscurity. It's kind of like the same thing that happened on the, the Damascus Road, remember? Or not Damascus Road, but the Emmaus Road. Very important point to be made here. You see, Jesus was walking with those two disciples on the Emmaus Road, but it was it was very cloudy to them at that moment. It, it, they, they were walking with their resurrected Lord, but they didn't recognize him. He had, Of course, he had a hood over his head. He was... He, he was uh, in obscurity to them because it, their hearts were clouded by the situation. They couldn't really see him rightly. They couldn't really hear his voice correctly. They were, they were so clouded with all these different thoughts and, 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 and events and happenings. And they were just detailing everything for Jesus to understand what was taking place about Jesus until he broke the bread and gave it blessing. Then he was gone from them and up, uh, poof, he was gone. And the disciples said, oh, that was Jesus. And they took off running to tell the other disciples. They were the third group that came to tell Peter, the, the disciples, before Jesus showed up that night. That's the kind of clouds we're dealing with here said he, he comes with the clouds. And you know what? We could preach Jesus today. We could reveal this message today. And, and people, ah, whatever. I don't, I'm not sure I totally believe that because they're clouded with evolution and they're clouded with, with all these different ideas of religion. They're clouded with, with even some of the mainstream ideologies of what is called Christianity today. is so clouded, the gospel, that, that the people are not sure what to believe. And Jesus said, I'm coming. In the midst of the clouds, he said, every eye is going to see him, even the eyes of those which pierced him. But remember, we talked about this last week, and, and we talked about the nature of what it is like to be in heaven, in that third heaven where the throne room of God is, is that you would be able to see the throne room of God is what we call heaven. You would be able to see the earth, and you would be able to see under the earth. So understanding 
that the spirits in hell would have a connection to be able to know that which is happening in heaven for for those in heaven could see hell that's what god can see today the whole of his creation including hell that even the eyes of those that pierced him would be able to see him and they wail and lament and are brokenhearted over what they experience what they have to see and the scripture goes on to say even so in other words none of that's going to change if you're destined for hell right now you better get saved you better come to an understanding of who jesus is and who you are and the fact that you need him because that that concept right there in the scripture of seven that says even so it simply means this is going to happen and no matter how much they wail and no matter how much they cry no matter how many alligator tears pour out of those eyes it isn't going to change what should have been dealt with before dying get right with god today Oh, the message of Revelation. Get right with God today. And so we shall be in verse number 8, taking up to, to next week. What a beautiful, powerful point is made here. I am Alpha and Omega. We'll look into it next week. Father, we thank you. We ask that blessing upon us as we consider these truths today. And Lord, if it's well that you give us opportunity to get through this book, that we may be able to tell others of the reality to come, that we may be able to rejoice in the labor of what you have given us to do. We'll thank you and praise you in the blessed name of Jesus. Amen. All right, guys, God bless you. Keep you, cause his face to shine upon you, and I'll catch you Monday for the, the finale of Luke 20, maybe. We might get to the end of it Monday. And I'll catch you on Sunday, uh, currently at Morgan's Baptist Church. So definitely you want to tune in. God bless.